Mark Schneider has been the CEO of Nestlé since January 2017. As you all know, Nestlé is the world's largest food and beverage company with, in 2020, uh, about 270,000 employees and over 80 billion Swiss francs of, of uh, revenues, powered, of course, by an incredible portfolio of iconic brands, including KitKat chocolate bars, uh, Purina, uh, pet food, uh, and of course Perrier Waters, and many, many, many more. Mark, you were the first uh, external CEO hired by Nestlé in almost 100 years. Uh, you joined Nestlé from uh, healthcare group, Fresenius, uh, which you had joined in 2001, and soon thereafter became CEO uh, for the group. And of course, during that time, you were incredibly successful. Thank you again for making the time to be with us today and also for welcoming us in this Nestle facility. Well, thank you for having us on your program. Very happy to join. So, uh, Mark, we're, we're recording this interview at a time where hopefully we are starting to see a light at the end of the COVID crisis tunnel. And of course, for some countries in the world, this light is still a little bit far out. But Hopefully, in Europe, certainly, it seems to be improving a bit. So, two quick questions related to COVID. First, looking back over the last 18 months, what would you say Nestle has done really well and maybe slightly less well? That's question one. Question two, looking forward, do you anticipate that this, this crisis will kind of end and we will return to some form of normalcy or do you anticipate another scenario where we will have wave after wave after wave of variants and, and this crisis will be with us, maybe at lower intensity, but for years to come? Yeah. Look, happy to comment. Of course, uh, this crisis has uh, consumed a whole lot of time and effort uh, from all of us uh, as private people, but of course also here with the company. I think in all modesty, uh, Nestle truly in this time uh, rose to the challenge. Uh, very early on, uh, we articulated three key priorities. One was the health and safety of our people. Um, that was directly linked to the second one, which is business continuity, like keeping the shelves stocked with uh, critical food and beverage products at the time of this crisis. And the third one, since we knew full well that a food company like us was going to be less impacted than some other industries, from that position of privilege comes responsibility, and we wanted to be a good neighbor and always, wherever possible, give a helping hand uh, to the communities around us. So in all three of these dimensions, I think the company has really delivered. It was gratifying to see how the decentralized structure was paying off because um, while the priorities were the same, people in those regions found quite different answers uh, to that challenge. And uh, nonetheless, you know, against the backdrop of uh, their specific um, environments, um, uh, we were meeting those objectives really well. Now, in terms of what could have gone better, hindsight is always perfect, as you know. Um, we did keep up supply chain quite well uh, compared to our peers, but of course, we did face outages here and there. Uh, had we known that something like this is on the horizon, we probably would have uh, prepared the supply chain better, run larger inventory levels and so forth. Um, I think there's a common learning here for everyone, and that is everything was optimized for efficiency before. I think the virtue of having uh, some extra reserves um, for a rainy day, I think that has come back uh, with this crisis. And of course, uh, we also learned our lesson in that regards. Now, going forward, um, there's hope, you're right, uh, through the vaccination programs. 
but um, this will be a protracted recovery from all I can see uh, at vastly different speeds, uh, country by country, depending on uh, the availability and adoption of vaccines. And then second, um, I think it's going to be a nonlinear recovery in the sense that you will see some setbacks, whether that's uh, uh, some mutants or whether that's something else, I don't know. But uh, clearly, uh, you know, this is not what people maybe did hope in the beginning, and that is uh, you get vaccinated, it's over. Um, I think this will be a several-year process. Okay. Now, it is often said that strategy starts with two fundamental questions, where to play and how to win. So let me start maybe with a few questions around where to play, which of course refers to Nestle's portfolio of businesses. Uh, now, under your leadership, the company has been reshaping the portfolio with a number of significant acquisitions and a number also of disposals over the last few years. One of the most visible acquisitions was the $7 billion coffee licensing deal with Starbucks. Um, you were already very present and very successful in the coffee category. Tell us a bit more about the rationale for this deal. Sure. And look, coffee is um, our signature category. It's our largest category, and it happens to be a large, growing, and very attractive market, and one that really benefits from all sorts of um, areas of differentiation. Uh, the way you prepare coffee, uh, different brands, and uh, also temperature like ready to drink, cold or hot. Um, so there's plenty of ways here. And I think that also points to a wonderful um, future of ongoing um, uh, product innovations, pipeline, and also differentiation from our competitors. Um, we had a bit of a weakness uh, in the North American market. We were very strong traditionally in Europe, our home market, uh, Asia and uh, Latin America, um, but North America, we had a bit of a weaker market presence. Starbucks is the ultimate iconic U.S. brand, and uh, it also stood for a type of premium position that's very consistent with our approach, and hence, um, I think it was a match uh, made in heaven, and uh, couldn't be happier with how, with how this uh, product has been going. Now, Nestle has been he investing heavily in health science uh, and it in, in its health science units. Uh, and you've been developing a, a range of products for a range of health uh, problems. You have also divested some businesses like Nestle, Nestle Skin Health, which maybe was too close to pharma. I, I guess there's a continuum uh, between nutrition and pharma, and it seems that both sides seem to be converging somewhere in the middle. Where do you draw the line? How do you decide what's, what's a good business for Nestle and, and what maybe is too close to pharma? Yeah, we are actually willing to go into pharma and prescription type products, but it has to be anchored in nutrition. And hence, our vehicle to do that is Nestle Health Science. The problem with Nestle Skin Health was that it really lay outside of the perimeter which is our sweet spot, and that is food and beverage. Uh, so it was really a topical uh, uh, business per se. Whereas, you know, what we believe in is how can we bring in the power of nutrition uh, uh, to uh, the products we, uh, we offer? And um, so on that sense, it, it, you know, it made sense uh, to, um, to focus our efforts and, uh, and divest of it. 
Uh, in Nestle Health Science, though, uh, we're very happy. We have a few products uh, that straddle into the prescription area. It's not always easy on a global scale to make that distinction because sometimes the same nutrition product that could be a prescription in some markets uh, could be over-the-counter in another. We're not typically going high-tech. We're not going into injectables, for example. Uh, but uh, for what is related to your nutrition processing and digestive tract, um, yeah, um, frankly, uh, an occasional pharma product here and there adds credibility and makes use of the know-how uh, we have in that space. So the, the categories that is sometimes referred to as nutraceuticals, that, that, that is uh, within scope. Absolutely. And a uh, super promising area as more and more people get so knowledgeful, thanks to Dr. Google, um, on what is good for them and uh, what they may be lacking in terms of vitamins, minerals and supplements. So uh, we see major promise in this area. Maybe one more question in this area, because you have referred to personalized vitamins, minerals and supplements, and you've said they're going to be the next frontier. Now, a few years ago, I remember working with some pharma companies that were talking about personalized medicine. Uh, so how will this personalization work? Personalization in our case is probably a little easier than uh, in some other heavy-duty uh, pharma or biotech applications because there, very often, uh, you need to have a pretty good understanding of the person's uh, uh, genome. In our case, mostly it's built on questionnaires, uh, lifestyle uh, diseases you may have. Um, and in the most advanced level, it would be a blood test, uh, but it doesn't go deeper than that. And blood tells you the full story in terms of, uh, you know, which uh, vitamins, minerals, and supplements may be there uh, at below power level, which may be uh, over-concentrated. So this is where I think you can then tailor uh, those personalized solutions. And, and so that, I guess that will also capitalize on individuals taking charge of this process, right? Because they would get a blood test, and from there, thanks to Dr. Google, as, uh, as you called it, they would be able to identify some food and some nutritional uh, components that would be good for them or not good for them. Yeah. In some cases, it's people taking charge and then looking up what they need and filling in uh, all the necessary information online and, for example, uploading a blood test if they have one. In other cases, we also go through the healthcare providers and basically have the healthcare provider guide uh, the person through uh, the situation and also the remedies. Now, another area that you divested is the U.S. confectionery business, which, which you sold to Ferrero. And, 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 and this business including some very well-known brands like Crunch and Butterfinger. And I, I remember when I was a kid, Crunch chocolate. Uh, now, confectionery, of course, involves sugar. And, and sugar uh, has been increasingly fingered as a source of inflammation and, and also as a source of extra calories. Should we expect the proportion of Nestle sales coming from sugar-related products to continue to decrease over the next few years, or, or is that an isolated case? I think the divestment of our confectionery business in the U.S. was more driven by what I call the ability to win, or the lack of it in this case, because we had shrunk to a distant number four with market share of less than 5%, uh, and uh, hence, with those brands and their brand demographic and price positioning, it was very hard uh, to catch up to uh, the leading pack and then win there. We made it very clear when we reviewed that business and sold the business that um, this is not a reflection on our confectionery business worldwide because in some markets we are actually very strong. We're number one or two. 
and uh, enjoying that leadership position very much. Um, so it was not so much a reflection for or against uh, the category. Um, we do believe that in addition to the sheer nutritional needs that everyone has, uh, food uh, products are also about enjoyment and uh, indulgence. Um, when we play in those segments, we still want to offer the healthiest option, but it's also clear to us that uh, taste and uh, mouthfeel and attributes like this in those categories are decisive. And uh, we really try to cover all aspects of food, uh, not just the one that keeps you alive. Now, shifting to uh, sustainability. Um, Nestle, of course, is a company that has a very large footprint on the world, particularly because, of course, you're related to agricultural practices, which, of course, raises a number of challenging questions regarding water usage, deforestation, CO2 emissions, or the use of pesticides, just to name a few. Now, all of these are delicate topics. Um, is there a general Nestle philosophy on these topics? And how high are these sustainability questions on, on the agenda of your executive committee and, and on yours in particular? Yeah. So let me start with the second part. They're very high on our agenda, uh, both for the executive committee and for me personally. Uh, we are going through a significant change uh, when it comes to how our consumers think about sustainability topics. Uh, from our consumer research, we know that the younger, the better educated, the more affluent consumers are, the more important those topics become. We're also living in a digital age where all of your sustainability practices sooner or later are fully transparent and known to the consumer. And hence, uh, it's a very clear case to me, if we miss the boat uh, on these trends, we will pay the price down the road in the form of losing consumers and losing market share. So this is in addition to what we ourselves feel what's right and wrong, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, it's also about just staying relevant to a consumer that has now different needs from maybe 20 or 40 years ago and being prepared for that. So in a sense, it's like R&D, it's an investment in future-proofing of a company. Now, in our case, I think it's an easy rollout inside the company because when I look at the Nestle DNA, for 150 years, we've been dealing with fragile agricultural communities around the world, uh, whether it's in coffee growing or dairy farming or what have you. And we see how um, dependent these communities are on climate and, um, you know, receiving a proper market price uh, for their crops. And uh, so I think that has taught us early on uh, a strong environmental um, uh, level of uh, awareness and concern and um, so based on that, it was not so difficult inside the company to galvanize the energy and, uh, and, uh, and the forces to actually get that work done. So it is the right thing to do. Uh, but then in, on, in addition to that, it's also something that I, th I think positions as well uh, for the future. I've also read you commenting on this and, and you commented at the time not only on, on consumer uh, evolving preferences, you also said that, that you felt that the regulatory context is going to change in a way that anyway will require companies to internalize the cost of their actions. Absolutely. So it's the consumer and the regulator that essentially make the business case uh, for this. On the regulatory side, uh, look, this is the first time um, that you have something on a high level that approaches regulatory convergence between the major North American economies, uh, Europe and Asia. 
Um, between 2016 and 2020, when the U.S. was not part of the Paris Agreement, uh, they were uh, missing in that equation. Uh, before 2016, not all of the Asian economies were convinced that this is something they need to work on. Europe, I think, has been there for a longer period of time, but um, it's only with those three major blocks somehow going in a similar direction that you get momentum. Um, the detailed solutions by country may look different, uh, and also some of the timelines may look different, but uh, the overall direction of travel is now aligned, and uh, I think that creates a lot of powerful regulatory force. But one last question on this, but even then, so, so clearly consumers increasingly demanding in this area, uh, regulators hopefully increasingly clear and convergent in this area as well, but there's still some question as to when we will have to do what. So there's still some uncertainty. I mean, I remember some of my clients, they've been expecting carbon pricing, you know, for 15 years. So. Is there still sometimes, when you're in the boardroom, are there still sometimes moments where it's hard to assess whether this is really going to be maximum profitability or not? So is there a moment where you have to, 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 to give it a leap of faith or, or where you have to give sustainability the benefit of the doubt? I mean, there, there's got to be moments where the numbers don't tell the whole story, right? Look, this is not only the numbers, but uh, let's be clear, this is no different from other business situations. When we develop a new product, how would we know that it's exactly that product the consumer wants a few years from now um, or that some other need is, uh, is, is uh, addressed here? So there's always an element of risk and you might get it wrong and you don't, I mean, when we talk about value maximization, you never get it right to the last uh, centime. But um, in terms of the overall direction, um, I think um, there is no doubt in my mind. Yes, this requires a lot of upfront investment, but I do believe as mentioned, that there is a good business case for that investment. And uh, now it's about making it happen. It may be a bit easier for the consumer-facing companies because there you have both of these elements kicking in. The consumer, which I think is easier to forecast at this moment, and the regulator. Um, with some of the upstream industries, the ones that are more like business-to-business -business areas, where it's really only the regulatory side, uh, that may be a little harder than to assess. I'm not surprised when you do an analysis of the companies, for example, that have taken the United Nations uh, two-degree pledge or one-and-a-half-degree pledge. Um, they skew a little bit towards consumer-facing because I think everyone is seeing the same landscape out there when it comes to the new consumer. Now, shifting from uh, where to play to how to win, let's talk briefly about innovation. Uh, innovation, of course, has always been an important topic, but you seem to have accelerated uh, its role and its focus within Nestle. So what does innovation mean for Nestle today and, and how has, has this changed over the last few years? So look, we're sitting here in the R&D accelerator and uh, with all the many product samples here, you're seeing uh, the power of uh, recent um, uh, investments in R&D and the difference that they can bring to consumers. And to me, innovation is, uh, in this day and age of um, complete price transparency, uh, it's the new way of pricing. So people are happily paying up for something new and exciting that offers uh, new additional benefits. For the same stock keeping unit as last year, uh, frankly, uh, you are hard pressed even to recoup inflation. And um, these days, remember, it's been only 10, 
12, 13 years that consumers can stand somewhere in an aisle and basically instantly compare uh, prices to the best available price online. Or when they start shopping online anyways, you have all sorts of crawlers that give you uh, the best available price. So um, the pricing really comes from new and exciting products, not so much from pricing up the existing units. And one of the things I read uh, you saying in, in the press is, is also that you've tried to accelerate the innovation process. And, and, and of course, you also have food safety uh, concerns and constraints. Uh, but, but within those food safety constraints, you've tried to accelerate the innovation. It's two things. Uh, one is, uh, of course, we're fully meeting the food safety requirements, but occasionally taking a risk and even going after something that may be slightly to the left or right of uh, what our traditional core is, and just being more playful and, uh, and uh, running experiments. That's one. But then the other one that you're alluding to is reducing the cycle time from concept to store shelf. Uh, remember, this is food. Okay, so this is not um, high tech. Uh, this is not pharma that requires extensive uh, uh, clinical tests and regulatory approvals. So uh, for most of these categories that are not subject to approvals, we should be able in six or nine months to actually make it from an idea to an actual product that's out on the shelf. Um, and in the past, that sometimes used to be two or three years. And, uh, you know, that sort of time frame, people can build an entire new car. So, um, so it was clearly no longer competitive when we compared that to the best-in-class uh, startup uh, competitors. And we had to improve on this, and we did. So, so that I was about exactly to, to, to make sure that I confirmed this. So what you're saying is over the last few years, one of the, one of the significant differences is we've accelerated the, uh, the cycle time uh, in order to be able to innovate faster. And of course, I, I know one of the things that you had been attacked by increasingly were these small brands uh, that were coming up with, with uh, innovations. Yeah, okay. and um, that opens up a whole new arena. In addition to just, you know, keeping up with competition, it also allows you, while an event is still happening, to react to a changing market. So take COVID. Okay, so very clearly, um, when you look at the number of Google searches, there's a huge interest in everything related to immune boosting capabilities. We were able, from the beginning of the crisis to this winter, to get out uh, a muggy soup that boosts the immune system and can rightfully make that claim. That sort of endeavor, you know, to respond to a circumstance while it's happening, uh, in the past with our development times, would not have been possible, but now we did. Now, let me shift away from business to focus more on you as, as a leader. You're the CEO of one of the world's largest and most global companies. So, two sub-questions. One, what's the most fun about your job? And I'll let you define fun however you, uh, you wish. And, and what's the most challenging part about your job? So look, hands down when it comes to the most fun is exactly what we're talking about here in the development center, and that is uh, exploring, discussing, uh, and trying uh, new products. And uh, comparing this, sitting together with our colleagues, and then you know, making sure the product is just right, uh, that's something I tremendously enjoy. And uh, that plays out in so many other categories as well. And of course, with uh, about 20, 25,000 products in our company, as you can imagine, this is like being a kid in a toy store. So that's the part I, I really love. The part that is the hardest when you lead a company, uh, no matter here or elsewhere, is when you're mulling over decisions where you know that there is no absolute right or wrong and no um, better or worse, but rather a difficult trade-off 
where a bit more of one means a bit less of the other, and finding and agonizing over getting the balance right. So thinking about environmental targets, you know, in SBC, quite a few of these, as worthy as they all are, tend to be opposed to each other. So when you replace the plastic packaging for water with a returnable glass bottle, yes, you're reducing plastic packaging, but you're also increasing your CO2 emissions. And um, so then making those difficult judgment calls where you know that there's no absolute right or wrong and where it's all about a viable compromise um, that works, uh, those are the agonizing moments. Those are the moments where you also take the problem home with you and um, where it kind of um, nags at you over time. Now, staying on the challenging aspect of the job, in 2017 and 2018, um, you and the company faced a so-called activist shareholder. And um, since then, many uh, commentators have noted, uh, have complimented you for the way you and the company handled it. Uh, more recently, over the last few weeks, one of your competitors uh, also faced uh, an activist shareholder and of course for them the consequences were uh, significantly less positive and pretty much nobody has complimented them on, on the way they handled it. So uh, tell us, what's the best way to handle activists or an activist shareholders in particular, what are some of the do's and some of the don'ts? Yeah, look, happy to comment, but let me also say in all modesty, uh, not all activist shareholders are the same, uh, and also not all company situations are the same. So there is no magic recipe here. Uh, it certainly helped that our business uh, developed quite well. And um, so, I mean, that of course diffuses a whole lot of uh, potential uh, tension. But overall, it's important to note that activists or no, if someone invests their money in our company, in a serious amount of money, they deserve um, a dialogue, which is a principle that we have always upheld in our uh, investor relations. And uh, that means uh, if these people want to engage, you have to engage too. And you have to do it in a constructive way. And if there's a difference of opinion, it's important not to get provoked, uh, stay with the facts, also dare sometimes to agree to disagree, but do it constructively. And um, basically, make yourself accessible, uh, make yourself also open, because no one knows it all, to advice that may be spot on, uh, but remain firm on the principles that are important to us. And I think with that, and then of course, the good development of the company and the share price over time, um, I think this is the best way to not only keep activist shareholders happy, but all shareholders happy. So I heard humility that maybe we don't see everything. I heard uh, courage to be challenged. Uh, I also heard uh, try not to be provoked. Um, is there an aspect sometimes that it's, it's hard? I've seen CEOs who sometimes took things very personally. Uh, how, how challenging is it not to take it personally? Look, um, you've got to stay fact-based uh, and you've got to stay constructive. I mean, when we assess executive leadership, we always demand it from our people. Well, then, you know, the CEO has to live it too. And um, so it's all about fairness and, uh, and uh, being open, constructive. And then also, uh, you know, keeping the things, because usually our investor relations dialogues are confidential, from our side, keeping them there. Even if the other side occasionally may choose to make things public, from our side, you know, when an investor engages with us, we listen, but we also assure confidentiality. And one thing I, I heard in both of your answers is the importance of having a few principles that guide your action. Principles, of course, are important. When in doubt, 
principles can guide uh, our selection of action? Essentially the principles on what is important uh, for the company because I mean as much as uh, shareholders can have wonderful additional ideas I mean the intimate knowledge about what's important to the company I mean that's essentially what you pay management for and so we're closer to the situation we spend more time on it and um, and so in the end we are responsible for how um, um, decisions are taken and also we stand responsible for the results. Last question Mark uh, and one that is dear to my heart as a professor of leadership. Uh, 1991, 30 years ago, you were completing your PhD in economics at St. Gallen, at the University of St. Gallen. Assume that we met then and we were good buddies then and then somehow for any sort of reason we, we lose touch and we reconnect 30 years later, just about now. How different is the Mark Schneider of 2021 from the Mark Schneider of 1991? And, and, and how much of those differences, if any, are, are the result of a conscious and deliberate journey on your part? Yeah, look, very interesting set of questions. And uh, let me start by saying, hopefully he is quite different. And hopefully this would not only apply to the time frame from 91 to now, but also to the time frame from, let's say, 2017 when I took this job to now. My philosophy is um, life is change. As you go through life, uh, there is you know, constant learning uh, going on and uh, being able to take new situations in and, uh, and kind of reimagine, reinvent yourself to me is part of life and, uh, and facing it successfully. Um, the alternative is ossification. And uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, didn't help the dinosaurs, doesn't help us. And um, so, yeah, I mean, there's certainly aspects over time that I hope uh, will continue to change. And if we sit here five years from now, would continue to change. Specifically, uh, you know, since everyone's biography is a little different, um, 91 uh, was also the starting point to what I call the American chapter in my life. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the 90s uh, in the United States eventually ended up being a U.S. citizen, taking citizenship in 2003. And yes, uh, that was a period of time, both at university and professionally, that um, has sort of pushed me a bit out of the European comfort zone uh, where I grew up and uh, gave me a new angle on quite a few matters. And that left its mark. That plus, of course, then all the ongoing experience through um, my uh, jobs I've held and uh, personal life, um, I mean, take as a good example the environmental discussion we had where had you asked me 20, 30 years ago, I would have told you, look, I mean, obviously willing to listen, I'm not rejecting climate change, but do we really have the data? Well, now we do have the data and being open to that and seeing it. And at some point, you know, when the time is right, based on the facts to change uh, your viewpoint and uh, also your action plan, I think that to me is the essence of life, not only from a executive point of view, but also personally. Mark, thank you very much for making the time and best wishes of continued success to you and Leslie. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. To hear more such interviews as soon as they come out, click subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this. You can also find a range of forward-thinking analyses, business intelligence and insights in our new magazine and content ecosystem called I by IMD. You will be able to register by clicking in the link that appears in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for listening and until next time.